Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. Oh, we have so much to talk about today. We're going to talk about heartbreak. We're going to talk about letting go of your ex. We're going to talk about love addiction. We might even have a few arguments, a few disagreements, a few debates, and a deeper understanding of the preference of, e- of each other. We're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. T.K. Coleman is here. What it is. We've got the rest of our team as well. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, and of course, joining us by live stream, Podcast Sean, and Social Jess, Post-Production Peter, and all the ghosts that haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got so much to talk about today. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at minimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Harper. Hi, my name is Harper and I had a question about um, letting go of your ex. Um, when you have done that intellectually and you're trying to do it emotionally or you mostly have, but physically like in your body, uh, like your body hasn't let go. Um, I'll still have almost like trauma dreams about my ex. Like, uh, she still has apparently some power over me or my nervous system, uh, still thinks so anyway, like I won't think about her for weeks or months at a time, but then, um, we'll have, uh, dreams about this person and have to wake up, uh, and actively think about letting go. What do you do when your body, uh, sometimes physically won't let go uh, of a person? Joining us in the studio right now to help us answer this question and several other questions is Dr. Courtney Warren. She's the author of this new book, Letting Go of Your Ex. It's a book about healing the pain of a breakup and uh, also overcoming love addiction. Dr. Warren, thanks so much for being here. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, we want to get into a pretty difficult topic to discuss here with Harper specifically. He's talking about heartbreak Mm -hmm. and the inability to sort of let go. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like there's some healing that needs to happen here. And before we dive into the question itself, I thought your book was really instructive for his question in particular. I'm reading here from page 89 of Letting Go of Your Ex, where you talk about the faulty beliefs about your ex. And I'm obviously not going to read the whole section here, but the first faulty belief is my ex is the best. Mm. My ex is the best. They complete me. They're this magical human because when you're with them, it Mm. feels amazing. Mm -hmm. If anyone out there has ever been in love, you know that feeling I'm talking about. Mm. It's euphoric. It's a natural high. You meet them, you're with them, and you feel wonderful. And because of that, you will create a whole belief system based essentially in lies because you're going to idealize them over almost any other human. Ooh. 
And what happens is that ideal version of them is sort of this 2D cutout, this nostalgic cutout. You look at them in the rear view, and of course, they're perfect, which is actually the next faulty belief. My ex is perfect and perfect for me. Mm. Perfect for me. Because I've put them on this pedestal. I feel amazing when I'm with them. I think about them all the time. I crave them. I want to be around them. I'm planning for our next rendezvous. It's this wonderful, magical fantasy experience. But as long as we're together, I am going to be happy. Yes. I am going to have meaning. I am going to be important. My life is going to work out. Mm -hmm. And so they must be perfect. They are the perfect specimen. I have found the perfect specimen (laughs) for me. And that pivots perfectly into the faulty belief number three. My ex's choices reflect my value. Mm. And that's such a tough one after you break up. Because at some level, as we put them on a pedestal and we idealize them and we feel amazing, we think that their comments, thoughts, opinions are valid, are true, Hmm. are somehow reflective of you and who you are and what you should be and what should matter to you. And so if they don't like something you're wearing, something you say, something you like, your way of being in the world, it feels like a personal attack. Mm. It feels Mm. like somehow you are diminished. Mm. Yeah, Mm. And I guess maybe the opposite might be true where you look at, let's say you break up with someone and you look at their partner and you're like, oh, I'm way better looking (laughs) than that partner. (laughs) Like I saw someone, uh, some girl tweet, she was like, oh, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that my boyfriend broke up with me. Um, his, his, his new girlfriend is way uglier than me. And then someone retweeted and was like, sounds like he learned a valuable lesson about looks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point though, because if you take, if you like make a list of all the things your ex criticizes you for, mm-hmm. someone else might love you for those very same qualities, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what else is really fascinating per your example? Sometimes you look at your own friends, people you love and people they are dating and they are giddy and gushing and, oh, this person's amazing. And you're looking at their mate going, are you sure? Like, mm. <laughs> I'm not seeing what you're seeing here. Like, they might be fine, but, yeah. and you can see it. You see their deception. Mm. We see deception, self-deception in other people way more easily than we see it in ourselves. Oh, yeah. And that's really a lot mm. of the journey of understanding who you are mm. over the course of life. Yeah. And we don't always understand the value that we bring perfectly either. Uh, Derek Sivers was talking about this with like a music experiment where a number of different artists had to cite, what's your best song? And when they put a list of their best songs and then they talked to the fans, the fans didn't even like the artist's selection for best work. But the fans were like, oh, this changed my life about things that the artists themselves didn't think were that good. And so sometimes we think, oh, I'm valued in this relationship because of this attribute I'm proud of about myself. And the other person's like, no, I don't care about that. Like the looks, I don't care about that. I care about your funny. So while you're busy gloating over the fact that my new significant other is worse looking than you, I'm rejoicing in the fact that they're funny because that's what I always valued. Mm, Yeah, I'm going to get into a couple more faulty beliefs here. Mm. This one, I think, is one of the most dangerous because we believe it to be true. It's faulty belief number four. My ex will change or I can change them. Mm. And so there is a line in our Mm. first book, 
uh, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life that Ryan and I wrote way back in 2011. You can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. Quite often what we do is someone's in our life and I will love you conditionally. If you just change these seven things about yourself, oh, you'd be the perfect partner, right? And of course, if I were to somehow convince you, manipulate you, persuade you to change six of those, I'm going to neurose over the seventh. Or even worse, I get you to change all seven. What do they say? A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, that you don't actually change them by changing the sort of surface ornaments in a way. And so can you expand a bit on this idea of I'm going to change you? So often when you're going through a breakup, there's this churning phase. There's this phase where you're not sure if you should stay or go. You really love someone profoundly. You've built a life with them, but it's not working, right? And so you're on the brink of leaving. And after you actually break up, there is this questioning and self-doubt of, well, maybe I can change them. I can change their mind. Mm. I can get them back. I can fix that. I can change myself or I can make them love me again. I can make them want me again. And it becomes this hyper fixation on a fantasy, again, on something that isn't really real because you can't change someone else. The Mm. only person you can change is looking right back at you in the mirror. That's right. Mm, That's it. We'll do one more Mm. false belief here, faulty belief. It's the sixth one here. I need my ex to be complete. Mm. Now, in order for me to be complete, I need that person to complete me. And this is insidious. Before we started recording, we were talking about how most great Pop songs, love songs are about this sort of misunderstanding of love. You complete me. I need you. I'm lost without you. And all of this great music, while it sounds really good, and we're in fact, we're going to listen to some really good music later during the added value segment on the podcast. But it's this belief that, oh, Having you, having this in this idealized version of us is going to make me complete. Mm -hmm. And quite often what happens is we lose ourselves in that. And I, I think this ties back closely to Harper's question here. When he called in, he said, I'm having these trauma dreams. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as though part of that is like, oh, I'm feeling this incompleteness. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that partner is going to not just heal me, help me heal but they're also going to complete me. It's going to make my life not just better, but complete. Mm -hmm. I absolutely hear the trauma in the nightmares that Harper was talking about. And I think so much of the recovery after a breakup of letting go of an ex after a bad breakup is re-finding yourself your identity, your Mm. meaning, your values. Given that this person who you probably built a life with at some level is no longer there, now what? Mm. What do you bring to the table? Who are you? What do you care about? And it's really common to have lingering symptoms after a breakup, much like he has, where you intellectually know it's over. I know it's over. We're broken up. I've radically tried to accept this. But now I still have symptoms. I still feel lost. I still cry. I still get triggered when I walk by that coffee shop we used to go Mm. to, or I see a picture, or our mutual friend says, oh, I saw so-and-so, your ex, last week. And so they still have some hook 
in you. And it feels very frustrating for a lot of people because they intellectually don't want it. You'll even hear people say, I don't even like them anymore. Mm. I don't even know why I'm thinking about them anymore. Why do I care? Mm. And so part of that journey for him, which it sounds like he's doing a pretty good job of, is continuing on your own path to creating your best life today. Mm. And that means adding in new social supports. It means cutting off contact with your ex as much as you can. Mm. He's having a little contact in his own mind, much Mm. to his own dismay through those dreams. And there are ways that we can strategically help him with that as psychologists or as mental health professionals. But so much of it is refinding your own value, refinding your own voice, remembering that this breakup doesn't break you it doesn't actually have anything to do with your value if someone else doesn't want to be with you anymore. Mm. You have exactly the same value as a single person than you did when you were with your ex. Yeah. And that's something a lot of people forget. Okay. You know, um, there's a story of two guys sitting in a coffee shop. This beautiful woman walks in and one of the guys says, man, she's gorgeous. I'm going to make my move. I'm going to ask her if I can buy her a cup of coffee. She sees him coming and she says, I'm not interested. He returns to his seat and his buddy says, how did it go? And he says, "Ah, she wasn't that beautiful anyway. Uh. And then his friend says, let me guess. She magically became ugly the moment she rejected you. Mm. Letting go does not mean ceasing to be attracted to your beautiful qualities. Letting go does not mean, oh, you were funny and now I'm convinced that you're no longer funny. People continue to be the same talented, charming, beautiful, inspiring people they always were, even when we part ways. And letting go is really about saying, I'm committed to creating my future in a way that doesn't involve the two of us playing the same roles that defined our past. It doesn't mean that someone has power over you if you still find them attractive in certain ways. So, If you look at an old picture and you say, wow, she's still beautiful. If you go to sleep at night and you have a dream about her, that doesn't mean she has power over you. That means she's compelling. She's inspiring. She's beautiful. And you're a reasonable person for ever being attracted to her in the first place. And letting go means I can receive that. I can allow space for that. And I can still remain committed to doing what is healthy for me in spite of the discomfort of having those feelings sometimes. It sounds to me like what you're talking about here with letting go, part of it is the the healing process as well. It's healing is sort of the gateway to letting go. But of course, we can't do healing, right? I remember when Ryan broke his back a few years ago, he had to sit up in the hospital for a while and then in bed for a while. He couldn't do the healing. Mm. You got into a car accident a few years ago or last year, actually. It's not even been a year. Yeah. yeah wow. Okay. And... You had to heal from that. And there wasn't something that you could really do to heal. Now, you can strengthen yourself after the fact, but the healing involves actually letting go of the doing. And so quite often, what I would say to someone like Harper is letting go of this person just requires more healing to take place. And the only way you can heal is putting yourself in the right environment for a protracted period of time. And it sounds like you're already getting there. Our next question today is from Shri. My name is Shri. I'm from Illinois. Uh, We just ended a 15-year-old marriage and we have two kids. I'm trying to manage expectations um, with my ex. So 
I know like uh, the expectations were like a big point of resentment for me. So I'm pra- trying to practice no expectations and having high acceptance. Uh, at the same time, I don't know how to manage kids' expectations. Should I let them? Should I let them disappoint? And sooner or later, they will come to terms. Or should I just manage having a backup plan? Uh, try. I mean, I do not want to cover up for him, but at the same time, it makes me pain for the kids to be disappointed in certain ways. So, how do I navigate? trying to be um, equal, sharing responsibilities of family, which is my primary value. And at the same time, I can't push this value on my ex. So how do I navigate on day-to-day life, holding the expectations and accountability for him, at the same time, not going into insane loop? Dr. Warren, it sounds to me like Shri is beginning to understand that acceptance is sort of this tool to declutter your expectations Mm. because she also realized that those expectations are a gateway to disappointment. Mm -hmm. Having all these expectations of your ex, of your current partner, of your kids, sometimes it makes sense, but it's also going to make you angry. It's going to make you upset. It's going to make you discontented. But she did bring up this word, Resentment. I don't want to resent my ex. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about resentment? Oh, yeah. Especially in a situation like hers, where oftentimes what I see in divorces or in people who have been in relationships for a longer period of time who may have children is that the fantasy addictive nature of love that happens early on, usually in the honeymoon phase, Mm -hmm has dissipated because they've been together for a long time. And so what happens in the breakup is there is so much more anger Mm. about false promises, Mm. about expectations that were never met, about a lifestyle that had such hopeful, positive future ideals tied to it that are no longer going to be. Mm. And so... A lot of the process of healing after a divorce is going to include not just getting over your ex, but getting over everything that encompassed the life you had with your ex. Mm. Your home, your family, your roles as co-parents, all of that is probably shifting. And so when it comes to resentment... The number one thing I tell people when they're really angry is this. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love and hate is indifference. Mm. Your goal is to come to a place in yourself where you look at your ex and you look at your old life in all of its brutal and wonderful glory and say, I see it. I experienced it. And it's not going to affect me anymore. Mm. I love how she said, lowering her expectations, but living with a high level of acceptance. And Josh and I, we often talk about living with low expectations, but high standards. I think acceptance might be a better word there. Because the more we can accept, the more we can kind of find that indifference where it's not making us happy. It's not making us sad. We're just accepting what's happening to us. Now, she brings up the kids and... 
She talked about, you know, how does she manage her kids and how does she manage her kids' expectations? But man, I think about like when my mom and dad split up, it drives me crazy that like they would totally just talk trash about each other Hmm. constantly. And um, it really affected me because I would look at my parents differently. So with Sri here, you know, I think the best thing you can do for your children, which it's so easy to give uh, advice about kids when I don't have any. Um, but the best thing to do for the kids here is like, you know, r- remind your kids like, yes, your father loves you. Yes, your father wants the best for you and try to keep the negativity out of it. You don't want to lie to the kids. No. Um, but you certainly don't have to, you know, badger, or, you know, bash their their dad um, yeah, when he does something that when he doesn't meet an expectation. Yeah, your kids are going to have expectations for mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. You don't need to hand them your expectations as well. Yeah. The degree to which you can keep that somewhat separate. So talking to your children about what they miss, how they feel, what they would like from their parent, from their father or from her, and not having your own reaction to your divorce bleed over into what you're communicating to them Mm. is the most loving thing you can do for them because they're going to be angry and they're going to have reactions. They might feel really sad, very scared. It's a lot of change. And you want to give them a safe space to tell you that because if you don't, they're going to start hiding it from you and it's going to come out in other ways Mm. that are less healthy for all of you. Yeah, that's great. Another thing I'd add to is, is never underestimate the power we have to solicit cooperation by asking questions rather than making demands. So if you're expecting something from someone and they're not coming through, it can be helpful to say, hey, is there something going on that's making this an unattainable goal for you? That's making this unrealistic? Am I asking for too much or asking for it in a way that just doesn't work for you? Or is there something I could do to support? Here's what I need. Here's what I'm expecting. I mean, do we need to have a conversation about that and whether or not those things need to be changed? And sometimes when you can just put a question mark at the end of those expectations and mm. needs, it can open that other person up and say, yeah, you know what? I, I am struggling. I don't, I don't think I can do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I, 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 got, I need to change it up because of my schedule and this and that and that and this. And then that can create the space for new possibilities to arise. That's never a guarantee, but that's what makes it so powerful because when we argue, when we debate, when we list our demands, that's the realm of guarantee. That's the realm of familiarity. But that's also the realm where we repeat the same old results. It's the questions. It's the uncertainty. It's the risk of vulnerability and openness that creates the space for something new. Mm. Dr. Warren, it seems to me that whenever we feel this resentment, it's always associated with blame. And Rarely is it me blaming myself, mm-hmm. i.e. taking responsibility in my role in this relationship. It is simply pointing the finger mm-hmm. and saying, you are responsible for my discontent. Mm-hmm. You're responsible for my anger. You're responsible for my sadness. And yes, it may be true that your ex-husband did some things that you weren't happy about. They didn't meet your expectations and they didn't meet the standards that he promised to, uh, to upkeep, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. That's true. But accepting that is not pointing the finger. It doesn't mean you have to point the finger at yourself either. It means that you can understand that it didn't work out the way you wanted it to work out. And the blame is the thing that is, it makes you feel like you're in power, but it's actually doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's taking away your power. Mm -hmm. 
getting power from your wounds is a very dangerous thing to do as a human Mm. because we are animals at our core. And when we feel threatened, when we feel hurt, we oftentimes want to use our wounds to blame any outside other source for our pain. That isn't to say that many of us aren't in situations that are incredibly objectively painful in our lives. Right. In fact, life is really hard. It is very hard to be a human. Hmm. And you want to make choices from a place of strength, not weakness. So when, as soon as, for example, you notice yourself thinking, it's all my ex's fault, they're the worst, I want you to pause. Because that's really not true. Refocus and say, what does my reaction to my ex right now say about me? How did I contribute to getting here? How did I pick this person in the first place? What did I learn about love as a child, as a young, impressionable person that got me to have these expectations about people? Because you can't just blame other people for your pain and Mm. use it to hurt them. Because actually what it will do is it will hurt everyone around you and yourselves. Holding on to something objectively painful and becoming bitter and angry is not our best strategy for Mm. healing here. It's also socially so problematic because we create a culture of anger and blame and you owe me. Mm. I deserved better, so you're at fault. Strive for forgiveness. Strive for empathy. Strive for compassion. We're all on a journey. I guarantee you, your ex has some deep pain as well. They have had some hurts in their life. They have had some trauma. They have had some difficulty. All of us have. If you remember that we're all in this together, trying to figure out who we are and how to be the best of what a human can be, you will remember that the goal is to be empathic, have endurance. Don't pass your pain on to other people. Mm. Shree, thank you so much for your question. We have another question here from Allie. This is Allie from Columbus. I've been divorced now for about 12, 13 years. Um, My ex-husband and I have two children together. And um, unfortunately, I have to see him every single day. Uh, We get along okay for the kids' sake. And uh, what I've noticed is I can't help feeling sorry for him. Um, He is not uh, in as good of a financial situation as I am, uh, I was the, the breadwinner and um, he's, we're both still single, but um, I, I don't know why I can't stop kind of feeling guilty for how things turned out and the fact that he hasn't done a lot with his life and uh, isn't able to, to do as much now. I think part of it might be uh, my family kind of made me feel uh, guilty along the way. Um, He cheated and um, I uh, decided I wanted to set a good example for my kids and didn't want to look over my shoulder for my whole life. So I moved on, but I can't um, help 
still kind of feeling sorry for him. And I'm not sure um, what I need to do to to get past that and um, just realize he kind of um, made his own bed. Well, thankfully, we have a psychologist here to help us out with this. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> Dr. Warren, this is something I actually struggle with. So this is going to be an intervention for me as well. Mm-hmm. I think it ends up being a coping mechanism for me where it's like, oh, um, I am putting myself on a pedestal and that allows me to look down on them. Oh, I feel so sorry for you, right? But what is that saying about me, right? Now, what's the truth of the situation? The truth is their success is not your responsibility. Mm -hmm. You can't drag your ex-husband kicking and screaming to your version of success because that may not be success for him. Mm -hmm. And by the way, he may not even be achieving the success that he wants out of his own life, but it's still not your responsibility to persuade him to, to convince him of the best way to be successful for him. That's up to him to figure out. Mm -hmm. But feeling sorry for him is probably not productive. But I find that when I do that, maybe it's a way of me coping with the fact that this thing didn't work out, that this relationship was, at least in my mind, unsuccessful. Mm. Particularly if you're the person who leaves a relationship, it's really common to feel guilty. Mm. So one thing I like to remind people of when we're talking about breakups is that there are just as many people coming into my office because they're trying to get over you as Mm. you coming into my office trying to get over your ex. Mm. You are very likely to break somebody else's heart in this journey of life as well. And if you are the one who was dating someone, you may have thought they were a lovely human. You may have thought, you're really wonderful. It's just not a good fit for me. For whatever reason, I didn't fall in love with you. We don't have the same value system. I don't see my lifestyle being conducive to yours. And so it's not going to work. Oftentimes, people feel profoundly guilty for that because they don't want to hurt someone else's feelings because they think they're great, whatever the reason may be. So for the situation of the caller, you know, I think on the one hand, it's lovely that you have some empathy for your ex. It's lovely when you can look at them and say, I want more for you. I wish you were doing better, quote unquote, whatever that may be. Um, but having that sort of slight elitist part of you that says, and I'm kind of judging you for it, probably doesn't feel great. In general, I think being judgmental is a very slippery slope as a human. And I would encourage all of us Mm -hmm. to try not to do it. Judging is very different. We have to use our intellect. We have to use our thought process to make judgments because that rules our choices. I hope all of us are thinking very critically about what we're doing and why. Mm -hmm. Being judgmental means there is an air of, and I'm better than you, and I'm right, and you're wrong. Mm. And that is never going to go well. So I wouldn't encourage you to be too hard on yourself. I think it's amazing that you're aware enough to notice that you're doing that. And I would just pause with it for a moment and ask yourself, where is this coming from? Do I feel guilty because I'm the one who left, but now he hasn't recovered? What is it that I can learn from this? Yeah, man, empathy it can be one hell of a drug sometimes. Because mm. when we feel empathy, like it makes us feel virtuous. Yeah. Well, at least I feel sad for this person. But you know, if if Allie really wants the best for her ex-husband, I mean, the best thing she can do is, is support him. 
the, the maybe one of the worst things she could do is like share that empathy with him because then people get addicted to uh, being felt sorry for. Mm-hmm. So the question um, that I would be asking if I was Ali is like, okay, I want him to do better in life. So how can I support him in doing better in life? It's like, I have family members who I love them. I talk to them, you know, on a, on a regular basis, but like, I'm looking at their life and I feel sorry for them. Like, oh man, I want better for them. But I don't sit there and wallow in that. It's more about, I will ask them, hey, what can I do for you? What, what do you need right now in your life? Maybe I can help you out with something. Like that is probably the, the best approach. And um, maybe that'll help the guilt kind of go away when she's taking action to support her ex-husband. Yeah, I, I like to make the distinction between um, the pity of presumptuousness and the pity of passion. The pity of presumptuousness is when I look at your life and I say, hey, based on my standards, you're not doing so hot. You're not as successful as I am. I feel sorry for you. Right? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Does this person feel sorry for themselves? Mm-hmm. Does this person feel sad about their lives? Mm. Because no matter how mediocre they may look to me based on my own subjective concept of success, they might be quite content. And so there is a certain sort of presumptuousness involved in my pity in these kinds of instances. But then there is the pity of passion where you say, look, I have a value system. I want to see people doing well. And here's someone who's sick. Here's someone who's hurting. They admit that they're sick. They admit that they're hurting. And that makes me feel bad. Mm. That kind of pity is the kind of pity that can keep you humble. It's the kind of pity that makes a person virtuous. You want to have that kind of response to human suffering and human struggling. But when you experience that kind of pity, you have two options. You can challenge a person to do the things they need to do to get well. And by challenge, I don't mean you hit them up with like, hey, if you're really sick, you need to get to the hospital. No, you can ask them how they're doing. You can ask how you can support them. You can can nudge them in a positive direction. Or in a case like this, where we're dealing with someone who mess things up through poor choices and might not feel remorse about them, might not be really reflective on them. Sometimes the best kind of pity you can show is the pity that says, I'm not going to pamper this person because what they're going through is a very valuable lesson and they need to understand cause and effect. And I'm not going to save them from that. So because I feel bad for them and because I want them to get better, I'm going to let them go through what they need to go through so that they can learn valuable lessons about accountability, maturity, human action, and how their actions affect other people. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to some social media questions here. Looks like we got, actually, before we do that, Malabam, we got some questions in the live stream Ooh. as well. It's, it's interesting. When we were walking up to the studio, you were saying how this isn't like the, you know, the, the most fun conversation to have. But by looking at how many questions we have, I mean, it's obviously needed. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people, uh, they, they come to this, this is like their their place. It's like a last resort almost. Like I feel mm. overwhelmed by the trauma that this relationship caused in my life. What do we got here, Alabama? Let's start with a question from Pontus. My ex and I both embraced minimalism and what was important to us until she decided to leave so she could focus on her hustle and status. She now realizes it's actually making her miserable. How do I know if this is meant to be or just a mistake to accept? Yeah, so meant to be, that's a, a mm. another myth that we yeah. we tell ourselves, it right? It should be in that lie section, yep, <laughs> yeah. meant to be. Interesting. Tell us more. I think that people want to be able to explain a situation that they're in intellectually to make it okay. Mm. It's called rationalization. It's anytime you you take something and it isn't, well, maybe it was meant to be. I was meant to lose my job. I was meant to have this breakup happen. 
I think that it is much more honest when you can look at a situation and say, these were the choices that I made and this was the outcome. And maybe this was a good outcome or maybe it wasn't, but it didn't happen by accident. This isn't a coincidence. (laughs) This wasn't just kind of magically appearing in my life. And so it was meant to be. I think we want to be deliberate. We want to make conscious choices about the relationships we're in, the kinds of activities we do with our time, how we live our lives. You want it to be as conscious as possible. And part of that is taking ownership and responsibility for the situations that you find yourself in Mm. and changing them when they're not working for you. Mm. It's going back to that high level of acceptance. You know, it's interesting. I think we all want, like, we have one life to live. So when we choose a partner, we want to tell ourselves, this is our soulmate. I made the right choice. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is that there's probably, you know, there's 8 billion people in the world. There's probably a million soulmates out there for you. And so the question that I hear them asking is, should I get back together with my ex or should I not get back together with my ex? How do I know whether to get back together with my ex or not? Mm -hmm. And I would say there's not a right or wrong answer there. Mm -hmm. Like you choose what is your, what is your heart telling you? What is your intuition telling you? And if you get back together and it doesn't work out, that's okay. It's not a big deal. Um, There isn't a right or wrong decision here. It's really about, you know, what, what is your heart telling you to do? What are you moved to do? Yeah. And I would say whether or not this was meant to be really isn't relative, really isn't relevant for what you need to do next. Right. Because if if something, if something bad happens to me and I go, it was meant to be like, I still got to make a choice as to what meaning I'm going to imbue that situation with. I can say it was meant to be, therefore the gods are against me and my fate is a life of misery. Or I can say it was meant to be, therefore there's a higher purpose for going through this pain. Either way, the meaning is still coming from me, right? And so maybe it was meant to be, maybe it was a mistake. Either way, the question to ask is, has a valuable lesson been learned from this situation? Can I trust this person again? Can we move forward in a constructive way using the mistakes and failures of the past, whether they were meant to be or not, as a foundation for building something better? That's what's most important. Not, you know, did this happen because of fate, but can we go forward, you know, um, and co-create something beautiful together? Mm -hmm. Alabama, let's check in with Facebook. Looks like we've got a question here from Jay. What's the difference between clinging to someone versus having a sentimental attachment to them? Well, clinging is Mm. what happens when you can't let go. Mm. And so it's different from holding on. Mm. I like to think of when my daughter is on the monkey bars, it's a constant practice of holding on and letting go, holding on and letting go. Because if you can't let go, you can't move on. But also if you can't hold on, you also can't move forward. And so when we get to Jay's, the essence of Jay's question here, Clinging to someone versus having a sentimental attachment to them. Well, attachment is ultimately clinging if you can't let go. Mm. And so it's not that every attachment is a type of clinging, but if you're unable to let go of that attachment, well, you're clinging. Mm-hmm. And you, you just got to loosen the grip. As humans, we attach We need relationships. We actually need love. And part of the reason that I talk about love as an addictive process in this book is because love is actually a drive. It is a biological need in us. And from early childhood, 
You need adults to take care of you, to feed you, clothe you, be sure you're safe. And essentially, that makes you attached to them. That is a need. And so as you get older and you bring that learning into your adult relationships, when you're in a healthy romantic relationship, you want to be attached to your partner. It's Mm. a very positive thing to be attached to your partner. Clinging to me sounds like you're not really that attached or they maybe don't want to be attached to you. And so you're holding on sort of desperately to something that isn't secure. Mm -hmm. That can put you in a very precarious emotional position. And so I would say to anyone who feels like they're clinging on to something, it's not fully stable probably. And so work to figure out if you can make it stable or if perhaps you really need to cut the cord here and move forward. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I think it's weird that they said sentimental. So what I heard, the way I heard you reframe the question was, how do I know the difference between clinging and clinging? is the way I heard you basically rephrase that. But they use the word sentimental, which to me um, means something that we hold on to because of a memory with it, or we hold on to it because of a, uh, just a a habit that we have always had this thing in our life, or in this case, this person in our life. And for me, like that roots back to certainty and we all want some kind of certainty. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I would never recommend anyone cling to anything, but if you're clinging to something at the cost of living a less meaningful life uh, than if you weren't clinging to that thing, I mean, that is maybe where they need the um, the discernment here of like, okay, like I know I have this person in my life. I'm clinging to them. I need them to be in my life. I mean, that's okay. It doesn't sound like you said, like the most stable situation, but ask yourself, like, what does it look like without that person in your life? I mean, you could even do this with your things. What, you know, I got this Stein my grandma gave me from high school. That, that's sentimental to me. Like, I can think about what would happen in my life if I let go of that Stein and it disappeared. I'd be okay. Like, I'd be totally fine with it. So maybe that's the question they need to ask themselves. Yeah, I see clinging as kind of like being dishonest with myself about the direction in which the energy of life is taking me. And I think doctor gave us the imagery where clinging is something is moving away from me and I'm trying to Mm. keep it just a little bit longer or my life is moving me away from it. And I'm not being honest about the inevitability of what's happening here. And so I cling and that clinging produces anxiety and stress and insecurity. It's unhealthy because I'm not being honest about the fact that they don't want to be with me or this moment of life is over or It's time for me to graduate and move on to something new. Whereas the nostalgia, the sentimental longing for something is just a way of saying, hey, this made an impression on me and it lives in me in some sense forever. And that's okay Mm -hmm. as long as I can let go of what that was circumstantially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got another question here from Instagram. Kenna has something for us. I've noticed a trend of people trying to match their partner's energy But when they're experiencing negative emotions, that sounds more like codependency than empathy to me. What's the proper expression of empathy when your partner's upset? What's the right way to be empathetic? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, quite often we we conflate empathy with love, but empathy is not the same thing as love. To empathize with someone is to essentially feel their pain or their suffering. 
and to suffer with them. There's a great book by uh, Paul Bloom from, is he from Princeton or Harvard? Uh, but he wrote The Case Against Empathy, where he talks about how there's a radical, or there's a case for radical compassion, mm. and he differentiates compassion from empathy. Now, we often use those words interchangeably as well, which is all fine. But Dr. Warren, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, are here on the trend that we often have of meeting the other person's energy. When they're upset, I'm upset. Mm -hmm. When they're happy, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as though their emotion dictates the way that I feel. Right. I wouldn't really call that empathy. So just to go on record here, (laughs) we are very emotionally reactive as humans a lot of the time. And so what I hear the caller asking or the Instagram person asking is, Does it make sense for you to get upset when the person you're dating is upset? Does it make sense to match that emotional experience? What I would say is no, Mm. (laughs) probably not. Uh, Emotions are momentary. They're spontaneous. They're usually in reaction to something that's happening in your life. And if you care about someone and they're upset about something, it is a very loving thing to do to sit down and listen and hear and reflect and offer support. And that's a lovely thing to do. If they tell you they're angry and so you start to get angry, all you're going to do is have this escalating mess of emotion. And we also know that we don't tend to think very clearly when we're really emotional. So all I see is this could potentially create a big mix and mess of everyone being very emotionally reactive and not making great choices about how to handle it. I have this vision of like a tornado going. And like someone's like, oh, I'm going to just jump in that tornado yes, and be part of it. And I agree. Like that's not empathy. But the, the essence of this question is, uh, you know, how do I support my partner? And, and that's why their partners are trying to match each other's energy because they're trying to show them. You brought it up just a second ago, love and support. So like the question is like, how can I love, accept and support my partner in a moment when they have this high energy or low energy or whatever it is, um, sitting with them in it, feeling it with them. That is, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's healthy either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what I, part of what I hear in this question is how do I avoid the tragedy of pulling my partner in an emotional direction they don't want to go in? And this can work both ways. If I'm really sad and you're very happy, I don't want to drag you down. I don't want to feel like I'm ruining your day or getting in the way of your happiness. And then the reverse is true too. If, if I'm, if I'm coming in and I'm like, man, I just had the best day ever. And I go, how's it going? And you're like, oh, I'm so sad. I don't want to be like, Hey, well, I'm doing good. You know what I mean? Like, and, and so th- there does seem to be this kind of pull. It's like, well, I don't want to make you feel happier than where you're at. I don't want to make you feel sadder than where you're at. What do you do in those kinds of situations? How do you find that balance between being authentically where you are while at the same time letting the other person know, I I don't think you have to join me in my emotional space. Mm, I love that. The idea is based on the truth that you are over there and I am over here. Mm. In romantic relationships or any relationship that you're in, don't ever forget You are having a shared life experience, but you are separate entities, right? You are separate people. And as such, as you said, you don't want to bring each other down. You also don't want to stop yourself from bringing them up if they're having a bad day. But being really grounded and secure in your own skin, 
such that your experience isn't actually tainted by anything in your outside environment, Mm -hmm. be it your lover or what's going on at work or something in the news, in a way that is harmful to you is, I think, our goal, because that is actually how we bring everyone up from a cultural and social perspective, Mm -hmm. is staying clear, grounded, and ideally positive with your experience of the world. So always communication, always expressing care, concern, listening, being available, but maintaining your own equilibrium. I guess that's how I would call it. Maintaining your own sense of self and your own sense of being okay, independent of the tornado that may be nearby. Mm -hmm. And knowing that you can handle whatever tsunami comes your way because you are safe and sound in your own skin. Yeah. And paradoxically, that allows you to be more respectful to people because if you're not anchored and someone walks into the room and they're really sad, then internally you're going to go, oh, now I got to be sad for them because I'm their friend. And now you're trying to pull them up, not from a place of pure intention, not from a place of I'm passionate about you, but from a place of I don't have time to be sad today. So I got to get you pulled up. And if Mm. I can't get you there in 10 minutes, I'm going to start getting really irritated with you. But when you can anchor yourself and say, Feel whatever you need to feel in order to be you. And I know that I can be me and be free. Now I can love you regardless of how you react. Yeah. And in these high emotional situations, I think there's a default that I I know that I try to do. Um, It's to to love and accept and and respect and support my partner is just be a good listener. Like hold that context in those high emotional, those high emotional uh, situations. And I mean, I think that's a pretty safe bet to like kind of have that as your default. And being careful, too, because whatever feelings that you feel in response to their feelings, if you show them outwardly, it can turn into that tornado as well, Mm -hmm. right? Where if your partner is just angry at you and then you amplify it with, I'm now angry as well, right? Or even if they're angry at something outside the politics that are going on right now, I'm also going to be angry with you. Now it's turned into a tornado. And the same is true with joy, right? And so... If someone shows up real joyous, you can also amplify the joy by matching that, but being careful as well, because joy is also fleeting, just like the anger is fleeting. Mm -hmm. And so we can experience that emotion. We don't necessarily have to display it, but whatever you do display, realize that it will be amplified by the people around you. Let's move on to, let's go back to the live stream, Alabama. Do we have some more questions from our kind, lovely patrons. We sure do. Here's a question from Karen. My ex, who was also my first love, passed away a few years ago. I noticed that I idealized the time we had together and can't check these ideas against reality anymore. How do I let them go? Mm. Dr. Warren. Mm. Oh, that's such a tough one. Mm. That is actually a tough one that people describe in romantic relationships, but also in any death situation where you're going to go through a grieving process. And a lot of the grieving process is coming to terms with the fact that this person is no longer in your life in a way that you can directly communicate with or have closure in the sense of talking to them about it. Mm-hmm. People tend to idealize exes that have died. People tend to idealize romantic partners that they loved. And after someone you love dies, they also tend to remember the best parts of them and selectively forget 
the worst? Hmm. I think I would start by asking you how this affects you now. Does this affect your ability to have romantic relationships now because you're thinking about your ex and the fact that no one's ever going to be as great as they were? And I would start there because there's no reason necessarily for you to go back and say, well, my ex actually probably did have some bad aspects of them. There's no need to go back and kind of (laughs) hammer and chip away at this idealized image. Probably they're not here anymore. It's okay for you to have wonderful, positive memories of them. What can get you into trouble, though, is if you now compare your ex to everyone else you date Hmm. and they always fall short. Hmm. And so you're not going to allow yourself to be vulnerable and intimate with the next person because they've already failed. Hmm. I also think that memories are not real. I think we have to remember that, right? However you remember the person... That's not actually the person. Or if Ryan and I went to a concert last weekend, I have a memory of the concert, but that memory itself is not the concert itself. And being able to distinguish between the two, my memory of my deceased mother is not actually my mother. And whatever nostalgia I carry forward, whether it's good traits, bad traits, unpleasant, pleasant, whatever you want to call it, Those things aren't real. That's just the way that I'm choosing to remember. That's the story that I'm telling myself about this person who has moved on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Doctor, what if you're genuinely convinced that no one's ever matching up to that ideal, Uh right? Like I've got a couple of close friends, not partners, but close friends I grew up with who passed away. And I feel like I'm I'm never going to have friends like that. Mm. And, And everybody falls short of those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do? What do you do with something like that? I would say, do you find thinking that way about your former friends or friends who are no longer here helps you or hurts you today? Mm-hmm. How does believing that affect your ability to enjoy your life today? Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, they may have been core, solid, amazing people in your life. And they probably will always be that. But they aren't here now, Mm. at least not in physical form in a way that you can enjoy. So the question I'm always going to come back to is, how can we help you enjoy the present moment as fully as possible? Mm. How can we help you develop new relationships, fall in love again, have friendships that aren't mired by past conclusions that may or may not be true, may or may not help you now. I love that. Mm. First of all, you just you just gave me the formula for how to enjoy and appreciate LeBron James. He'll, <laughs> he'll never be Michael Jordan, but I can I can enjoy him now. Uh, oh, secondly, I you, you just kind of made me think of a kind of like a little mental exercise you could do is. If you have this person that you're so connected to and you meet someone new, you can say, what would they like about him? Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's great. 
Yeah. Another thing too is like just like living in gratitude. I mean, I would, I got this example in my head. Like, let's say that our first documentary, Minimalism, was the best thing we've done up to this point. If I compare everything that we do to this documentary and it falls short, then I'm going to feel bad. But instead, I can just be thankful that, man, I had that opportunity to do that documentary. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's check back in with our social media questions. We'll tune back into the live stream here in a bit collect some more of your questions and comments. So feel free to drop them in the chat, patrons. So we have a question here from Instagram. Manu says, the million dollar question, how do I start a new relationship without carrying over my expectations from the previous one? I feel like I'm bracing myself for the worst every time I get to know someone. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting here, Dr. Warren, that we don't realize that everything that we've picked up, we can also set down. So I picked up all these expectations based on a previous relationship. And by the way, maybe those expectations served me for a period of time. Maybe they didn't and they just frustrated the hell out of me. That's okay too. Realizing that is a really nice lesson, right? Mm -hmm. Before Manu's question here, he's going into every relationship, carrying over the expectations from the previous one. Mm -hmm. When you deal with clients Mm -hmm. who are facing a struggle like this, what do you tell them? I start by saying, yes. Yes, you will. Mm. You can't enter a new relationship without bringing some of your learning from past relationships. Mm. So let's just start there. Mm. Now, What did you learn in past relationships that hurt you, made you very insecure, made you very uncomfortable that you don't want to bring into future relationships? Because those are not only the areas that you're going to lie to yourself the most about, but they're the areas in which you will not be able to get close to a new mate. Mm. I would start there. What did you learn that was really negative that's going to keep you isolated? And how can we honestly tackle those beliefs so that you don't bring them into your next relationship? For example, maybe you learned that people always cheat. Something I hear a lot with with clients. Men always cheat. Women always cheat. They're always going to screw me over because it happened in the last couple of relationships Mm -hmm. I had. Say, okay, there is a learning that you've had. And that makes it very scary for you to date again. So as you start dating, as soon as you notice yourself thinking, why do I even bother? I'm not, I shouldn't even try because they're going to cheat on me again. We pause. We say, what evidence do you have that this person who you don't even know yet is going to cheat? What evidence do you have that all men and all women and all humans are horrible and they're going to take advantage of you at some point? And I am going to challenge you to change those thoughts until you have actual information about these new people that you're trying to get close to. Because in that way, you will bring all of your previous learning, all of your baggage. And side note, it also is strongly affected by early childhood learning, particularly under six years of age. Mm. Where you were most hurt where you learned things about love that may have felt true for you at the time, you will bring into your romantic relationships as an adult and they will probably hurt you. Mm. Yeah, man, I I had some pretty rough relationships. Josh knows. 
We've known each other a long time. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, it, it was it was kind of, and I'm not boasting, but it was kind of easy for me not to bring the past traumas into my new relationships because I really accepted the lessons that I learned in these past relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, I started learning things about myself. But I guess maybe, you know, there's just something built in me that anytime I started a new relationship, I would just accept that person for who they are and not project all of my fear on them. But, you know, this is a very natural thing. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah, we want to, we don't want to get hurt again. So it could even come down to like a, a new partner having like a mannerism of, of this, of a previous partner. You're like, oh, they, they used to scratch their eye, their eyebrow like that too. And that's a sign <laughs> they're going to, they're going to cheat on me, whatever it is. I mean, that that's just kind of built into us. That but, is one of the signs. So. It, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 yeah i mean you know being vulnerable i know that's such a cliche thing to say but like that's so important when you're going into a, another relationship a new relationship especially like i mean i started dating my wife when i was oh wow i was like 31 years old it was about 10 years ago yeah yeah and it, i had a lot of baggage but i never i never carried that stuff forward because i saw mariah for who she was i let her be who she was and i was like well you know, maybe it's a Missoula thing. I was just kind of like, all right, you're cool until you prove me otherwise. And it's like you were carrying that baggage forward, but you weren't handing that baggage to her Yeah, to extend the metaphor. Mm-hmm. I have one other thing that's been really useful for me, and I've seen it be useful for other people, is recontextualizing or redefining what it means. Like, oh, everyone cheats. Okay, well, how do I take cheating off the table then, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because there isn't one way to do a relationship, right? And I'm not prescribing polyamory or something like that. That's one way to do a relationship, right? You can be in an open relationship. If you've taken cheating off the table, now you're no longer worried about cheating at all, right? So how do I take this thing that I perceive to be this giant problem, which by the way, it's only a problem because I've said it's a problem. This is wrong. And if someone does it, they themselves are wrong and bad as a human being. Okay. But what if they weren't? How do I take this off the table altogether? Well, there's some conversations around this with your significant other, but understanding, you know what? It's possible to redefine what the relationship looks like so the baggage I'm still carrying with me no longer affects this relationship. Mm. Yeah, you know, and the thing about cheating too is that the only difference between cheating and breaking up is the communication aspect of it. Most people who have been cheated on would say, I would much rather the person just be upfront with me and say, my heart is no longer in this relationship and I want to pursue someone else than for me to be cheated on. Why? Because being cheated on comes with the embarrassment, the sense of scandal, betrayal and disappointment that comes from, I thought we were good. I thought we were on the same page. And then I have to find out on my own that this happened and it makes me look and feel bad. And so even with something like that, when a person says, I don't want to be cheated on, what they're really asking for is a relationship where we can be honest with each other Mm -hmm. about where we are. And if we ever get to a place where the feeling is gone, the fire is gone, Mm -hmm. then we can have an honest conversation about that. Are we going to try to fix it? Are we going to try to improve it? Or are we going to part ways? That's what's wanted. And so even the preoccupation with cheating is more of a symbolic expression of something that's more fundamental. And that is something that you can optimize for in a relationship. And and so we have to separate those expectations from needs. Expectations are about what you anticipate from others. Needs are about you and what you desire, what, what, what you need to be fulfilled. And letting go of those expectations doesn't have to mean 
letting go of your needs. Mm -hmm. Dr. Warren, would you like the final word here? My final word on this actually is that it's a journey of self-discovery. We so often think of of relationships as it's about that other person. It's about this new person that I'm going to date that may or may not work. The reality is that relationships are just a vehicle for you to see yourself differently. And so when you think about entering a new dating experience after a bad breakup, I recommend to people that they think of it as a big experiment to understand themselves differently. It doesn't have to be the end-all be-all relationship. Try something different. Date somebody you never would have dated before and see how you feel. What do you learn about yourself? What do you see that you're bringing into relationships that maybe you want to shift? What can you learn? It's actually a journey of understanding yourself, not one of finding the right person. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Courtney Warren. What a great last word. That was awesome. Man. You can check out her book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. It's called Letting Go of Your Ex. Dr. Warren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was so great. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. Now you can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Now during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. So you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. So we have a question here from Sylvia. I think people who need you to communicate your expectations don't know what they're doing in a relationship and will ultimately disappoint you. How can you make yourself happy instead of expecting your partner to? (laughs) Hmm. That took a turn. (laughs) Let's throw 60 seconds on the clock for Ryan and allow him to dissect this. (laughs) Oh man, here's my pithy answer. No one can make you happy. They can only enhance the joy that exists inside you. Amen. And you know, I had an ex one time that I broke up with and I constantly looked back as, oh, I would have been happier if I would have had them in my life. I've, I should have done better. You know, I was completed back then. And man, I sh- certainly feel incomplete now. But what I realized was that incompleteness is not her fault. It's my fault. And why would I ever give that power to someone to have that domain over me to make me happy or not? So don't give that power to someone else. Be complete on your own. And then anyone else that enters your life, be great if they can enhance it. We were talking with Courtney on the private podcast, Ryan, exactly about what you're saying. But the thing that's fascinating is all these love songs that sort of talk about, or movies, you you complete me, right? But the truth is, you incompletely me. But it's not even you that incompletes me. It's my need of you to complete me paradoxically, incompletes me. Mm -hmm. And so it's beautiful. I love what you said here. No one can make you happy. They can only enhance the joy that exists inside you. So you can't pursue joy through someone else, through a relationship, but you can find someone who amplifies that joy that's inside you. Mm. We have 60 seconds on the clock for my good friend, TK Coleman. Communication is not a substitute for chemistry. No matter who you are and how much the other person loves you, there will always be some things that need to be told and you're setting yourself up 
for a life of continual disappointment and resentment if you demand telepathic knowledge from your partner. With that being said, however, no matter how much you communicate, you will not enjoy that relationship unless you are with someone that is committed to learning about you, making themselves a student of your heart and delighting in the ways that they can surprise you in the ways that they can make you excited without you having to spell it out and prescribe it for them. So communication matters, but only when it's based on a foundation of real energetic compatibility. There's something in you that creates a spark in me. There's something in me that creates a spark in you. And once we have a dance that's more fundamental than the words, then we can bring in the words and the words can amplify what we have. But without that dance, without that spark, without that fire, our words won't get us there. I love Mm. what TK is saying here. Ryan, he seems to be describing in our last book, Love People Use Things, we talk about how every relationship especially intimate relationships, but any relationship really is a three-legged table or it's like a tripod, that tripod that that camera's on over there. It requires all three legs. And if you take one leg away from that tripod, what happens? It tips over, right? And the three legs for any relationship, compatibility, which you talked about, chemistry, which is important, and love. In chemistry, you know right away. You have some sort of chemistry with someone. Like the three of us have a particular chemistry on this podcast. Or when you have sexual attraction to someone, there is a particular energy or chemistry you feel there. And that's easy to notice. It's really difficult to sustain. In fact, on the private podcast, I do want to talk about some ways to sustain it and also talk about how we can take cheating off the table in a relationship as well. And so we'll talk about that. But the other two legs... Love, in some respects, that is the easiest and the most difficult. We mistake love. We say attachment is love. We say clinging is love. We say needing is love. We say conditions are love. But of course, that isn't love. To love someone is to see them for the who they are without trying to change them, manipulate them, convince them, persuade them, right? And if you can do that, it's a type of acceptance in a way. And so now you have two legs. But the third leg, which we often forsake, and we try to make work is compatibility. Mm. And if we're not compatible with someone, it doesn't matter how much I love you. It doesn't matter how much chemistry we have together. Oh, the energy is just there. But if we are not compatible, and I've been in relationships, and most of my exes at this point, it wasn't because we didn't have chemistry. We did. It wasn't because we didn't have love. We did. Mm. It's because we simply weren't compatible. And what happens is when you realize that, you cling tighter to the relationship. And when you cling tight to that relationship, what happens? You get dragged in the direction of chemistry and of love, so-called love. But that isn't love at all. Real love has a willingness to let go if there isn't a compatibility there. One other note on that. Mm. Sometimes you're compatible for a season. And that compatibility Mm. ends because your values change, your beliefs change, their values change, their beliefs change, their preferences change. And that's okay. Just because you were compatible a year ago or 10 years ago doesn't mean you're going to be compatible today or tomorrow. Mm. It's crazy how when you have two of those things, how hard it is to let go because you're like 66% there. And to let go of that 66%, it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult. Well, back in school, 66% was a D minus. That's what you'll get out of that. You'll get a D minus relationship. It's not enough to fail, but it's almost there. How dare you share my high school grades? (laughs) (laughs) Give me 60 seconds, Professor Sean. (laughs) 
Love is not tethered to expectations. Ryan and I often talk about how standards are greater than expectations. An expectation means, hey, I expect you to do this. I expect you to do this. I expect you to complete me. I expect you to make this relationship better. I expect you to do these things in this sequence, and then we will be happy. Here are my expectations. Well, that's never going to make you happy because no one is ever going to fulfill all your expectations. And quite often, you're going to have expectations that don't align with their expectations. But what can you have? You can have high standards, standards for yourself. Here's how I behave in the relationship. If someone yells at me, I'm not going to yell back at you. That's my standard. I can't expect you not to yell at me, but I can have the standard where I'm not going to yell back. I'm not going to retaliate. And so love is not tethered to your expectations, but it's easier to see when you have high standards. We're going to check in with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, Real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. It's the final Sunday symposium. Well, for now, at least. (laughs) Uh, It's been a really fun experiment. We did four sold out events last year, Sunday symposium in Los Angeles, small groups, the smallest events that we've done in many, many years. 200 seats at Dynasty Typewriter. It's the theater uh, there in downtown Los Angeles. Sundaysymposium.com is where you can find tickets. And I think there are maybe a dozen or so tickets left at this point by the time this episode comes out. So Sundaysymposium.com. What do you all enjoy about these events? Oh, I love the intimacy of it, man. It's funny you said uh, the smaller crowd that we haven't done in a while. I mean, 200 people, man. I mean, like I remember when it was two, <laughs> <laughs> let alone 200. But I like those in- intimate events because I feel like there's just more connection that we can bring and that we can have with one another. Yeah. yeah. What about you, TK? Yeah, there's just the real magic that happens uh, when you bring people together in the same physical space, you know? Um it can be easy to dehumanize ourselves by treating the essence of our humanity as if it's primarily mental or spiritual. Hey, I can get everything that I need from Ryan over the internet or over the phone, but we are embodied beings. Our bodies matter. Our physical presence matter. Our ability to shake a hand, to make eye contact, you know, um, those sorts of things matter. And, and, and there's a certain kind of synergy that is created when you have the energy of bodies present in a room united under a common interest to connect. And that's what I love about it. It's the things that we can't predict, the things that we can't promise because they're things that we co-create together when we come together. Mm. We got a nice little surprise at this one as well. It is March 26th, sundaysymposium.com. Just a few tickets left over there. Let's check back in with the Patreon live stream. Alabama, what do you got for us? Here's a question from Melanie. I recently broke off a three-year relationship. In our last year together, he took leave from his job to work on his mental health. But after eight months of trying to support him, I could no longer continue being his therapist and mother instead of his partner. I truly care for him and I want him to heal. But how long do you wait before you move on? Yeah, uh, 17 months, two weeks, three days, four (laughs) hours, 16 minutes, 23 seconds. And that's the problem with prescriptions here, right? It's like it may actually take that long. In fact, they they did this survey how long it takes to move on from an ex. Mm. And on average, it's somewhere around 17 months. And that's why I was joking with that number. Mm. But that doesn't mean that, oh, I'd simply wait 17 months and that's how I can move on. But also, while you're, while you're mired in their discontent, 
it is also making you discontent because that discontentment is contagious. Mm -hmm. And what we don't realize is that you spend enough time around a joyous person, it seems to rub off on you. But if you spend enough time around a miserable person, it will often rub off on you. Even if you are predisposed to joy and pleasantries over a long enough timeline, you know, this is actually, you know, it becomes, this discontentment becomes a prison. Mm. And it's true, in fact, that like, if I were to put Ryan in a prison, an actual prison here in California, he's going to, over a period of time, maybe 17 months, he's going to start acting the way the other prisoners act in that prison, mm-hmm. right? We So we become imprisoned by our relationships. We become imprisoned by our own expectations of the other person. Yes, you want your, you want this man to, to heal and um, totally respect that. Yeah. But you can't force healing onto someone either. You can, as Ryan has illuminated, you can support them. But sometimes your level of support, you might confuse support with what you're actually doing, which can be, well, it can be incentivizing them yeah. to continue. And so you become an enabler of this behavior that you're actually hoping that they can heal from. Yeah, they start to get like addicted to the the sympathy that you're giving them. Man, um, yeah, it's possible to love and support someone from a distance. So it doesn't mean that you have to stop talking to them altogether. Um, you know, I think about that, that cliche of uh, time heals all wounds. And I'll tell you, I, I got divorced at 22. And I remember like the first week or two weeks um, that we were split up. I had a friend tell me uh, who went through the divorce process. He said, hey, man, I know how you feel right now. It feels like the world is coming down. You look at other people and you ask yourself, how could they be happy? And you feel like you're never going to be happy again. He said, but I promise you, he's like in one year, you're going to feel better. And he was exactly right. That is how I felt. I felt depressed. Uh, see people smiling. Like, what are they so happy about? The world's terrible. You know, like I had this, this um, angst and this, this stress and anxiety in me. And I'll tell you, at about the one year mark, I started to, it started to fade a little bit. Mm. And I wish I would have really taken that in when he told me that, because when he told me that, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, right, dude. Like, okay. I, yeah, I'm depressed, but this is the worst advice I've ever been given because it doesn't mean anything to me. But a year later, I'm really, uh, I, I really did start feeling better. So I wish I would have, would have taken that to heart. So, you know, as far as like when to move on, you're going to know when it's time to move on. There, there is no prescription for it. There's no exact time frame of when to move on. Because you can't sit down with a pro and con list. Yeah. Here are the seven reasons I should yeah. stay in the relationship. And here are the seven that I should leave. Right. Because mm-hmm. the truth is that some of these things are intangible or they're so, they, they weigh so much more. I tried to do this with place. Where do I want to live? Right. And for me, Southern California, there's a whole lot to recommend not living in Southern California. The high taxes, the traffic, I I can name a bunch of things, right? But I so outweigh the weather, but I also weigh the way that it makes me feel. Exactly. Like when you're ready to move on, your heart will tell you it's time to move on. TK, you want a last word here for Melanie? 
Yeah, I think the best kinds of friends and partners are the ones who are capable of keeping up with your own evolution. You're doing what's healthy for you and your life organically intersects with all of the people who are compatible with you. If you have to say, well, in order to keep you around in my life, I, I got to be unhealthy. You know, I got to be depressed. Well, that's not only bad for you in a self-interested sense, but it's also bad for the other person as well. This is why I love your decision to stop playing the role of therapist. I commend you for that because that's not just a drain on you. But if you're not a therapist, then that means you're playing a role in his life that you're not qualified to play and you're doing harm to both of you. Or if you are a therapist and you are qualified to play that role, but you really don't want to be there, then that means you're going to be doing this resentfully. So it not only drains you, but it also puts him in a position where he needs to be elsewhere and he's spending his time getting help from someone who resents him for the help or who simply isn't qualified to provide it. So I commend you for that. And what I would say is moving on doesn't have to mean, hey, look, I'm just going to find someone else to date and call it quits forever for us and close out that possibility. Moving on can simply mean I'm going to make sure I treat my health as something that doesn't have as a prerequisite you being completely whole. I'm going to be healthy now. And if you can meet up with me sometime in the future, then so be it. But in the meantime, I'm not going to treat your health as a prerequisite for mine. That's an astute point because quite often the best way to ruin a relationship is to expect the other person to play every role in your life. I need you to be my lover, my partner, my therapist, my mommy, my business partner. And all of a sudden you have all of these different expectations and it ruins the relationship. Why? Because it sucks the chemistry out of it, right? And it makes you less likely to even be compatible mm. with that person. So Melanie, it is not your duty to fix anyone else, especially your partner. You can support that person. You can be there as they heal, but it's not your duty to be there. Mm -hmm. And if you do decide to move on past this relationship, that also doesn't mean this relationship was a failure. The failure would be staying in a relationship that is no longer serving you. And by the way, if that relationship's no longer serving you, it's difficult for you to be of service to the relationship. Malabama, mm. what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, this is Donna Jensen from Virginia Beach. One way I found to get rid of my paper crafting supplies was to donate them to preschools, elementary schools, and middle and high school art departments. Due to limited budgets, teachers must buy most of their own supplies for arts and crafts, so they were thrilled to receive my vintage supplies. Some schools may even write you a receipt for a charitable contribution, so you can at least lower your taxes a bit, even though you won't realize the money that you put into the supplies to begin with. Kroger, the grocery store that I utilize, snail mails coupons to me monthly and to other Kroger users and shoppers. And not all coupons are the same. Different ones are sent out to different people. So what I would do in the past was file through my coupons and throw away the ones I know I wasn't going to redeem and then use the ones that I would. And so one day when I went to the grocery store, I saw the sweetest little notion of a coupon being strategically placed in front of the item it was reflecting the sale for. And I thought that was just a sweet little gesture that goes so far 
Um, and just a nice little surprise too. So now what I do when I get my monthly coupons from Kroger is keep the five or six that I know I won't need for myself and have a little field trip around the grocery store, leaving coupons around for the people who wind up needing those specific items. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. We're back from our pandiculation break. It's <laughs> pandiculation everywhere. <laughs> All over the studio. <laughs> oh, well, we got uh, our whole team here. We're going to go into some talkaboutables. Ryan sent me this video and TK this video. We're going to play this. If you're just listening to the audio version, you'll be able to hear it. We can give you some commentary as well. This is called corruption is is legal in America. For the last few years, I've had this sense that everything I learned as a kid about how America's government works is completely wrong. But I had no idea how bad things actually were until I saw this one graph. Researchers at Princeton University looked at more than 20 years worth of data to answer a pretty simple question. Does the government represent the people? Now, this is what they found. This axis here represents public support for any given idea. On the left, at 0%, are ideas that not a single American wants. On the right, at 100%, are ideas that everyone supports. This axis represents the likelihood of Congress passing a law that reflects any of these ideas, from a 0 to a 100% chance. On this graph, an ideal republic would look like this. If 50% of the public supports an idea, there's a 50% chance of it becoming law. If 80% of us support something, there's an 80% chance. You get the idea. Now, most Americans would probably agree that, with a few exceptions, we should be as close to this ideal as possible. Unfortunately, the way America actually works doesn't even come close. I think it's a, a good starting point for a conversation without us having to watch the entire video. Yeah. We'll put a link to the video. It's five or six minutes long. You can check it out in the show notes. It started with a question about does the government represent the people? Mm -hmm. And I think by default, it can't represent the people 100% of the time. Sure. Even if you look at like, just down to your neighborhood, right? If 60% of people in your neighborhood said, well, I think we should kill Ryan Nicodemus. <laughs> well, the people have voted on it. The, the, now the, let's let our representatives go ahead and take care of this. Well, believe it or not, I am one of those uh, 60%. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the, the idea is the, the, um, the, the, I, the chance. I'm trying, I can't think of the word. The probability. That's what I'm trying to say. It talks about the probability of a law getting passed. Mm -hmm. So if 60% of the people are for it, then I do think that it, it's ideal that the probability of it getting passed would be 60%. Not that it would pass every single time. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, I sent this, uh, I think it was you, TK, and Sean Harding, because we're always sending each other things, just, yeah. you know, different government things or whatever it is. Like, we, we get a little political, not argumentative or, uh, you know, we don't, we don't bash anybody. It's more of like uh, either a realization or something funny when it comes to, to politics. And I saw this and I was like, wow, that is fascinating. Like when you look at the probability of a law getting passed, it really doesn't matter how many people support it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. TK, can, and maybe you can expand on this, but even I think the, the problem is 
even if the people do support it and aligned with that, mm-hmm. it then becomes mob rule at some point. Mm. Some really terrible laws can get passed just because a certain number above 51% of people oh. agree to this. Interesting. I mean, we, we, this is, this is one of the problems. And they, they use the, the term republic here, but what you're really talking about is democracy. Right. If, if you wanted exactly what you're talking about, then you would have a democracy, not a representative republic. And by the right. way, I'm not prescribing one being better than the other. I think either can certainly be tyrannical. Mm. And we hold them up, though, as being virtuous. Yeah, yeah. R- real quick, TK, because I do want to hear yeah, your good. take on this. But, you know... I saw this video as an anti-government thing. Look how corrupt our government is. And oh, I saw it as really right. hard pro-government. So, yeah. So before we started re- uh, started recording, um, I said, you know, this is anti-government. We we had a laugh about it because I always give TK a hard time about his anti-government tweets and stuff. And you were like, <laughs> oh, I thought it was pro-government. And I really didn't understand when you said that. I just was like, okay, we got to record. I'm not going to get into it. But now we can get into it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you say it's pro-government, what I see you saying is, is like, thank goodness there are people in power that don't just let the mob rule. Y- yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the charitable explanation okay. of, of, of a republic. In, yeah. in an ideal world, mob rule can't take over. Uh, the Just because 53% of the population wants to kill Ryan Nicodemus... Mm-hmm. We need some sane people to say, actually, no, guys, we're going to go with the minority here, the 47 percent, yeah. because this is absurd. We can't kill Ryan Nicodemus. So what's the non-charitable explanation of what I just said? I'm just curious. No, I, I think the charitable, uh, the non-charitable explanation is that the government is so inept that they can't and, and so corrupt uh. that they are they won't follow the will of the people. They'll only follow the will of the finances. So how is that pro-government? I, I, to me, it's pro-government in the sense that if 53% of people vote for something, some the government can still sort of step in and, and stop it. Oh, but okay. to me, this is a pro-government video hmm. because it is talking about how the, the virtues of good government it, in an ideal world, government would happen this way. Yeah. And I think what TK would say here is, no, in an ideal world, it would actually function about 180 degrees of what they're talking mm. about. All right, TK, go. I mean, because I know TK, is, he, he's going to take the rest of our time here, and I, I'm so excited to hear this. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do that. Well, in, <laughs> please do. In fairness, yeah, please do. in fairness to government, we can define that in a couple of different ways. We can define it as a coercive institution. Or we can also define it in terms of voluntary systems of hierarchy. There are many organizations that do not rule by coercion that could be described as a kind of government, right? So in any kind of society, no matter how you set it up, human beings are going to organize themselves out of a desire to protect their own self-interest and the interests of the communities. And so there's no way around government in that sense, right? Mm. The, the, the concept that I often criticize is government as a monopoly on the use of force. I think what's interesting here, and I'll, I'll just say this so we can get back to the video, is part of what comes out of this discussion is, is the realization that we are all presupposing 
some kind of value system when we advocate for a certain type of government or when we critique certain things that government does or even when we get angry at people who critique the government. Because whether you believe in majority rule or minority rule, you still have to answer that question of who gets to decide and is there, and if there, is there any principle that transcends the opinions of that group? So if you say the majority rules, okay, what if 80% believe that we should all kill Ryan? Yeah. Well, that still isn't ethical, right? What about at one point in this nation's history when the majority of people believe that, yeah, slavery is cool? Is it cool? Right. It was resisted yeah. by the abolitionists because of a moral presupposition that says, no, some things are right and wrong independently of the majority. But then if you say, all right, clearly majority doesn't rule. So we're going to pick these 15 people. And it's like, all right, but who gets to decide who those 15 people are mm. and, and what makes them qualified? Right. Is there any higher standard that they should be held to? beyond the mechanisms that put them in that position. And so we're all working with value systems. And morality is one of those things that is very uncomfortable to talk about. And, and, and we tend to be a very relativistic culture that says, well, there are no objective moral values. But then when you bring up politics, those objective assumptions begin to rear their ugly head. And even if we're not ready to own them in a discussion on ethics, they certainly play out in a lot of our political contentions. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I, the point you made too about, um, I think you were kind of dancing around it where, thank goodness we don't have to vote on every little thing. Like, could you imagine every time there was a budget that needed to be passed, not just in the federal government, but state government, county, uh, city, whatever it is, it's like it would really take up a lot of our time. So it is kind of nice that we have, I don't know if it's nice, but it's it's convenient that we have uh, people representing us, maybe. And we'll see what the rest of this video says. <laughs> I don't want to do any spoiler alerts. Yeah, but, let's pl we'll play another yeah, minute or so of the video. Idea that nobody supports, literally nobody, and it has about a 30% chance of becoming federal law. Now, take an incredibly popular idea, the most popular idea this country has ever seen, and there's also about a 30% chance of it becoming law. This means that the number of American voters for or against any idea has no impact on the likelihood that Congress will make it law. Put another way, and I'm just going to quote the Princeton study directly here, the preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near zero, statistically non-significant impact upon public policy. So if you've ever felt like your opinion doesn't matter and that the government doesn't really care what you think, well, you're right. Pause it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, the problem is I wish that was true. I, I, I mean, I fundamentally disagree with that because what you're really talking about here is how do I now take my will and hand it to TK and mm. to, to Ryan sure. and, and uh, say, you know, it was that meme that we went over a few months ago where it was like, it, it's a guy at the voting booth. Is this where I impose my will on my neighbors? Mm, yeah. And, you know, we will vote for certain things, right? Because that's our preference, right? My yeah. preference is that we, you know, I can say my preference is we raise the taxes for everyone in my neighborhood so that my daughter can go to a better school. But then you go to the person next to her, but I don't have any kids yet, but we're going to take some of your money yeah. to help my daughter. And if we don't take your money, the police will show up here and they will, they will lock you up. Yeah. And um, when you talk about the monopoly of violence and coercion, people always will say that that is 
well, A, it's a straw man argument. Um, no one is actually doing that, but it is always the terminus of, of a government that has the monopoly on violence and has the power of taxation that ultimately, if you don't pay your taxes, you know, we all pay our taxes here, right? Because mm. we understand what the ultimate consequences are. It starts with inconvenience and then paying more money. But ultimately, you go far enough down that rabbit hole and you end up like Wesley Snipes. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's, this is what we advocate for when we say that should be a law. And sometimes we don't think that through because we almost treat, they should make a law about that as if it's the same as saying, it would be generally good if everybody did this, right? So if I were president, I'd make sure everybody reads Zig Ziglar's Secrets of Closing the Cell, whatever it may be, right? Well, what that really means is that I am willing to advocate for a policy that uses the threat of violence to make everyone do it. Mm. So that means everyone's got to get that book and read a copy. And if you don't do it, then you'll get some kind of fine. And if you don't pay that fine, then there'll be some punishment for that. And ultimately, if you resist the punishment that comes from violating that law, it ends in prison or death if you sufficiently resist. And so this doesn't mean that everything you can think of as a law is bad. It just means we have to think very critically and very carefully about the kinds of things that we want to achieve politically. There are some things that are best advocated for not by giving the power to the state to lock people up for failing to do it. I think everybody should chill out a little bit on the McDonald's, but I don't want the government putting people in jail for going to McDonald's. There's a better way to do it than by creating a policy for everything that I want people to stop doing that punishes the people for doing that thing. Yeah, I feel the same way about advertisements suck. When we, last week we were going over the bin... Affleck commercial with Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm. And and then Jordan actually brought up something interesting. He goes, well, he's actually a really big Dunkin' Donuts fan, right? And he's like showing pictures of him with all the Dunkin' Donuts. And my response was, that makes it even worse in a way. And now imagine if Ben Affleck, because we see pictures of him smoking all the time. What if he was doing Marlboro commercials? Would we feel the same way now? Mm. We'd be like, oh, yeah. We would we'd think Marlboros are cooler because it's Ben Affleck, right? The same way we think Dunkin' Donuts is cooler because Ben Affleck is, is eating it and talking about it. And yes, it is truly something that he uses and does, just like cigarettes or something he uses and does. Mm-hmm. And so we can criticize that. We can talk about it. We can say why we think it's gross. However... I'm not lobbying Congress to outlaw advertisements. Mm. And I think that's the the distinction. To me, my personal preference is we would get rid of all advertisements. If I'm Earth Czar, then sure, maybe I, I remove all advertisements. No onions, no advertisements. <laughs> I can imagine you like shooting them with your laser red eyes. Oh, <laughs> you know, Josh, it's interesting because the the perspective that what I saw on that graph was mm-hmm. the 0% supporting it mm-hmm. and the 33% chance of it getting passed. Yes. Where I feel like yeah. um, you're coming from the other end where you're like, what I see is you're saying it should be 60% support at 60% chance. So I, I'm more worried about the laws that no one supports. And because of the lobbying and because of corporations that uh, just you know funnel money into the government, they get certain laws passed that no one actually supports. But because of the corruption 
that uh, these laws get passed or these regulations get passed. Well, first off, there are no laws that no one supports. That That is a gross sure, yes, exaggeration. Right, right. Yeah. But the I think the point in inverse also stands and is the same. So, okay, let's say it's 80% of people support this particular law, mm-hmm. making marijuana illegal or whatever, or uh, alcohol illegal, right? And the other 20% are like, but no, I, I, it's okay for me. Well, sorry, we're going to lock you up because the other 80% of people have determined that you should be locked up. Yeah. And I think there's actually a good argument to be made here that in order to have a functioning society, this may be the best way to do it. Mm. I don't know that I agree with that, but I'm willing to listen to to that argument. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just talking about a friend uh, who is a technician and he was saying, yeah, it's really hard to work for some clients because they don't know anything about technology. And so they just ask, ask and ask without any sense of what costs are involved, how much time it takes. And I always have to educate them about, all right, that can happen, but this isn't a fast food drive through sort of thing that you're asking for. This is like a two-month project for the type of thing you're asking for. And here's what that would cost. Are you sure you want it? And some things in life are not about corruption, Some things are just about a gap between expectations and reality. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why I believe it's dangerous to hitch our theory of social change to voting alone, because there's a difference between being right about something making a difference and being right about the degree to which it makes a difference. So, for instance, if you give me five dollars and then I celebrate and says, yeah, I'm going to go buy a Tesla. And you say, uh, dude, that's not going to get you a Tesla. And I say, well, screw you, Ryan. This $5 matters. It makes a difference. Well, I'm right about that. Mm-hmm. The $5 sure. does matter. Yeah. But if I think that $5 is going to get me a Tesla, there's something important, a misunderstanding, right? Mm. And so many times we see a politician we like and they promise us a better reality and we vote and that person gets in and then we're dancing on the street celebrating And sometimes it's sort of like thinking that because you won $5, which is a big deal and makes a difference, that you're expecting a Tesla. And what I love about these kinds of videos is that they show the limitations of politics because even things that make a difference are limited in the difference that they can make. And when you develop that realistic, honest understanding of something, it helps you put some of the onus back on you and say, all right. I'm not going to treat my vote as I showed up and I did all the good that I'm going to do in society. No, that's just one of many things. What am I going to do the rest of those 364 days? Yeah, that's what I took away from the video, um, honestly, was that point of like, hey, you know what? I don't have that much of an influence. I have the $5. And that actually empowers me because I don't worry. It helps me to not worry about things as much. Yeah, and and so... You can do whatever your part is, and right. part of that might involve voting, but thinking that it stops there is like thinking that you're going to buy the Tesla with the $5. We've taken a detour from heartbreak. We're going to get right back in. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's because government breaks TK's heart. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The DJ Khaled thing. It breaks my heart. <laughs> it breaks my heart. Man, it's like DJ Khaled's in the room right now. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Um, <laughs> but I swear, guys, I honestly care about people. I swear, I'm still a good guy. (laughs) Danny Unknown uh, made something, um, well, he told me about something this morning. Did you know, Ryan, that Devin Booker recently unfollowed Kylie Jenner on Instagram? Oh my goodness, who is Devin Booker? 
<laughs> See, this is why Lewis Howes was looking at me when right. he was talking about is the athletes in a row. Yeah, 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 yeah he plays for the is. Phoenix Suns. Yeah. And, uh, and then TK, you're supposed to fall off. Well, who's Kylie Jenner? <laughs> <laughs> and um, the Danny, I'll let you talk about this. What, what happened exactly? So as my mother and I were driving into the studio today, um, that is a segment on a radio show. And they were asking the question, uh, when do you unfollow your your ex? When's the appropriate time? Mm. Because Devin Baker, Booker and uh, I guess Kendall, I think it's Kendall oh, Jenner. Kendall, yeah. Kendall, okay. they just broke up. Mm. And now everyone noticed that Devin unfollowed Kendall. And then Kendall noticed, so she unfollowed him. And so it, they're asking the question, when is the time to unfollow your ex? Your is ex. it when you break up, when they get a new person? Um, yeah, it's kind of that's crazy. wild. Well, here's the thing I, I want to, I think I can state the case for both of those. Thank you, Danny. And by the way, his uh, his mom is here in the studio today, yeah. Mama Unknown. Yeah, Mama, Mama Unknown. Unknown. Thanks for being here. Thank you for creating an outstanding son, very talented, yes. skilled son. Uh, here's by the way, that sounds so cosmic. Like, I can picture her in like a sci fi movie. Who are you? I am the mother of the unknown. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so Devin Booker unfollows one of the Jenners, mm-hmm. Kendall, apparently. Yes. Um, side story on that. A few months ago, uh, one of the Kardashians shared our documentary. Yeah, Chloe. Uh, was it Chloe? I think it was Courtney. Courtney. Yeah, it was Courtney. Uh, See? I got the K sound yeah. mixed up anyway. I, don't they all start with K? Well, they do. <laughs> <laughs> just blew my mind. <laughs> anyway, she she shares it on Instagram and like doesn't even mention the minimal. She just mentions less is now is on Netflix. That single week, our podcast downloads increased by 10x. No way. In one, it didn't mention our podcast at all. Didn't have a link to anything even. It was just a quick Instagram story video to her 210 million followers or whatever. And wow. instantly we we received just 10x on the number of downloads. That's the power wow. of a Kardashian, right? That is, I had no idea they had that much power. I thought their power was totally perceived, like how much they charge to do like a sponsor on their Instagram or something. Yeah. I had no idea that it actually had that much leverage. Yeah, and, and imagine if it was actual like, here's a link to their podcast or whatever else. Yeah. Like people had to do several di- different degrees of legwork to get there, yeah. right? And so- this is why we talk about things like this because it's in our culture and people are really fascinated and people get fascinated about something like Devin Booker unfollowing Kendall Jenner. Well, why? Because of two reasons. One, on one hand, it is a sign that I'm trying to make a statement. We are no longer together, Mm -hmm. right? And especially for famous people, that's one way that they make a statement. Oh, I'm no longer doing music with this person, so I unfollowed him, right? Yeah. I'm no longer dating this person, no longer like this person, so I'm unfollowing her, right? Mm. So it is a statement now to unfollow someone. And there are entire blog sites who track the following and unfollowing of different celebrities, right? Get out of oh, here. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the really popular ones, too, wow. like like Hollywood Unlocked and, and the Shade Room. And, and some people get weekly reports, right? Like 11 people unfollowed you this week and da-da-da-da-da. That's right. Right. And so you can see who's unfollowing whom. Mm. And I think when we do that, just to make a statement, it's passive aggressive. Yeah. However, I'd like to defend this. I'd like to defend Devin Booker here. 
angel's advocate. <laughs> what happens is quite often when we break up with someone, I don't want them to constantly be top of mind for me. Yeah. yeah. And so it can make sense to, in order to be able to let that person go, mm-hmm. to stop being informed of their everyday actions. Because Instagram is a way to sort of peek into their life and also the best version of their life again and again and again. And if you want the healing to take place, you don't want to keep putting your finger into the wound. Totally agree. And it doesn't have to be him making a statement. The, The sort of market that has built itself up around our desire to gossip about who's following who has transformed those types of decisions into a statement. Because once upon a time, not very long ago, he could have just unfollowed her and nobody would have cared. Mm, That's right. right. Yeah. And, and no one would have even known, right? right? But now it has become a statement. And so to continue to follow them also becomes a type of statement. I was talking to Danny before we started recording and I I still follow quite a few of my exes. I, I can't think of an ex that I have ever unfollowed. Um, and we continue to have relationships uh, that just happen to be different from the relationship as it was previously constituted. Which brings me to my next Talk Aboutable here. We were talking about this on the live stream and I wanted to bring this into the Talk Aboutable segment. We were talking about cheating. And uh, we even talked about this a bit on one of the, the questions. Taking cheating off the table or really redefining that part of a relationship. Quite often, we go into a relationship with a lot of baggage. I've Mm -hmm. been cheated on. I've been treated poorly. I've been manipulated, emotionally abused, or even physically abused, right? And a lot of those things are unacceptable, but other things, like like physical abuse is obviously unacceptable in a relationship. Mm -hmm. But other things like cheating is kind of based on what your perception of cheating is, right? Because I know several people who are in open relationships, I'm in an open relationship as well, where you take cheating off the table. It doesn't mean that there is no communication. In fact, there's much more communication when you're in a relationship like this. What it's really saying is, hey, I recognize that my wife is also going to be attracted to other people from time to time. Now, we can put up a barrier and say, well, we're going to continue to be monogamous, but still, I'm not going to deny the fact that you're going to be attracted to someone else. We get into a relationship. It doesn't mean that now you've turned off your attraction to everyone else in the world. Mm -hmm. It means that we can come to an agreement. We are going to be in a monogamous relationship, but your attraction to someone else is not an indictment toward me. It's not saying, well, Josh, you are now unattractive because I find someone else attractive. That's not how humanity works. We've evolved for 250, 300,000 years and even proto-humans previous to that, 4.5 million years or so, to be attracted to other people. To be attracted because that is how we mate. When we are attracted to someone, it furthers the species. Now, it wasn't until somewhere around the fourth century that we identified this idea of monogamy. And that's not to say that it's a wrong thing or a bad thing, or it's even unnatural. All those things don't really make a difference when we're having a discussion here. Monogamy, we're going to do a whole episode about it coming up uh, with uh, Aubrey Marcus. We're going to do a whole episode about monogamy and using it as a technology that 
helps relationships flourish, Mm. but also understanding that getting into a relationship, that is not necessarily the prerequisite. And it's certainly not the default state. I was reading an essay from Chris Ryan recently. He's the author of Sex at Dawn. And he talked about how he was a vegetarian for a period of time, right? And there are sort of two ways to approach vegetarianism. One is to pretend this is the way that you are supposed to be. You're supposed to be a vegetarian. Every time you smell bacon, I am wrong for being enticed by that bacon. And the same thing is true with monogamy. You can be monogamous, but it doesn't mean that you won't be enticed by the form of or the figure of someone else. Hmm. Yeah, the, the, demoni- the demonization of desire is, is the fastest way to lose your soul. Because once you say to love this person or this place means to recognize no beauty in others, well, now you've set yourself up for shame, guilt, which leads to secrecy and scandal and ultimately expresses itself in the worst of ways, which is often why many of of the people who do the darkest things, they have these repressed desires for which there was no healthy outlet or they were ashamed. They didn't have anybody that they could talk to about it. And so it expressed itself in an unhealthy way. But the more casual and open and transparent you can be about desire, the less scandalous it is. I even heard uh, Stephen King. I almost said Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I have an automatic trigger whenever I hear Stephen, I go A. Smith. Stephen A. King. <laughs> Stephen A. King. <laughs> Steph King. <laughs> what it's like trying to talk philosophy with an MBA mindset. <clears throat> um, Stephen King. No, uh, Stephen King said that uh, talking about horror, someone had asked him, hey, are you worried that writing about all of these dark things is going to make you more inclined? to do the sorts of things that your characters do. And he says, it's actually the opposite. He says, my fiction is an outlet for all of the things that exist within me and in Mm -hmm. every other human soul. And because I get to express my thoughts, like, ah, I could just kill that guy because I get to express it in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm never going to need to act on that in reality. And that's why we all need some sort of creative outlet for expressing what we truly feel, what we truly think. Because it's always good to tell yourself the truth. Even if it's about something that you shouldn't do or that you can't have, it's always good to tell yourself the truth of what you feel about it. Because otherwise you moralize it and say, well, uh, monogamy good, open relationship bad, or vice versa. The the person who's in the open relationship says, well, monogamy is just bad and it's not natural. And all of a sudden you're moralizing the thing. You're creating this sort of false binary. And you realize that, on a long enough timeline, no one is truly monogamous. Ryan, you've been with more than one person. (laughs) And just what we're saying here is, well, the rule that I have is none of those people can ever overlap. And then therefore that is monogamous or whatever it is. And we, Mm -hmm. we create all of these sort of strict definitions, these unnecessary boundaries much of the time. Now they can be necessary as well. And so I don't want to discount that. You can set up any boundary, any expectation in a relationship, but doing so in a way that causes complications unnecessarily or moralizes certain things in a relationship is a recipe for discontent. Yeah. And even within the context of like like morals where you say, hey, it would be wrong for me to do that. You're still doing yourself harm by pretending to be unenticed when you really are. Mm. Right. It, it's like the, the, the being vegetarian and smelling the bacon. 
What is it about being a vegetarian that requires you to lie to yourself by saying, ah, that bacon, that bacon smells so good, right? Mm. It's sort of like being diabetic and you know there's something the doctor told you that you can't have. You can still say, oh man, that smells so good, mm-hmm. man. I wish I could have it, but I'm, I'm not going to do it because I made my choice. It's yeah. actually easier to say no when you can kind of have a sense of humor about that and say, oh man, that cake looks absolutely delicious. Enjoy it, man. I'm yeah, out. And, and you're not saying that cake is morally wrong. You're just saying it's something that doesn't align with what I need in my life right now, right? It will be unhealthy for me to do it. Right, right. Yeah. And so the the word that comes up quite often in these contexts is compersion. Are you familiar with the term compersion? Uh, yes. So it's like to experience the joy of another person, yeah. right? And you can see that in romantic relationships. If you have a partner who is also involved with another partner, there's sort of two ways at least two ways, there are more than two ways, there are two ways that we often approach it. The most common is jealousy, right? Mm. Oh, I'm inadequate. I'm not enough, right? Mm -hmm. I am now incomplete. I was not enough to complete them. And so I'm going to be jealous or envious even, right? The other way to look at it is, wow, look how much joy they're getting from that other experience. Now, it's much easier to see that in the context of a child. Mm. I remember when Ella was really young, having compersion, as soon as she, you know, the first time she saw a butterfly and it was just flying around and just the joy and the smiles. And then you get that joy and smile. You have compersion for the child. I don't get jealous. Oh, I can't believe she gets to see a butterfly for the first time and I don't get to see a butterfly for the first time. No, I could. I could have that but that, that would seem yeah. like a psychotic response yeah. for the child, mm-hmm. right? We, as adults, though, we, we've shut off that response to our lovers. Yeah. We've shut off that response like, wow, you're really attracted to that other person. And I'm attracted to your attraction. Huh. Mm. How interesting is that? Just uh, we should do a, a segment called Compersion or Creepy. Where like, <laughs> like, like, like creepy. Ryan will be eating a burger or something. And I'll be looking and I'm like, oh man, that's, that's got to be real nice to enjoy that burger, man. That's real good. It's like conversion yeah, or, or creepy. creepy. He's like licking his lips. I think it's all, yeah, all in your demeanor and how you approach that, yeah, right? Right. <laughs> Why can't it be both? <laughs> Alabama, uh, it's that special time. What time is it? It is time for TK's Tweet of the Week. TK, you got something from Ahmed the Poet here. What do you got for us? Ahmad the Poet at underscore Ahmad the Poet. It's funny how you can go your whole life thinking that you need this one thing in order to be somebody. And then you run into people who value your character more than the quote unquote character. The first book, the first Mm. line of our second book, Ryan, was... Our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. Yeah. And so we, we sort of form these identities. We heap these accoutrements onto our identity. I am my house. I'm an amalgamation of my house, my car, my clothes, my job. That becomes my character, right? Yeah. I'm playing this character. Look at me and look at all of these things that my character has collected. Mm. Truly, when someone gets to know you, those things matter less and less with every moment that passes because I get to know your character as opposed to your character, right? Mm. And I think the other thing that is illuminated by the beginning of this tweet is you spend all this time trying to get the thing that completes you, right? 
And then it turns out that everything you ever wanted isn't actually what you want. And sometimes you have to get it in order to figure that out. Not always, but sometimes you have to get the thing you thought would complete you to realize that it didn't complete you Mm -hmm. because you, A, were already complete before you got it. You were already worthy before you got it. You were already yourself before you got it. And then B, you might realize that that thing incompleted me because I was just trying to prop up my ego, my identity, my character to look like the type of person who had character. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some things like we need, right? Water, food, shelter. Like there's some things we absolutely need to maybe not complete us, but to sustain us. But like what, what, uh, Ahmad, am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. What Ahmad is saying here is kind of what Pete Rollins, or calling attention to is what Pete Rollins would call object day. We tell ourselves there's this one thing that if I get it, I'll be just a little bit happier or maybe I'll be a lot bit happier. Mm. But as soon as you get whatever that object day is, like for me living in LA, it's it's a Tesla, man. I always think like, oh man, I got to drive a lot in, in LA and the Tesla peer pressure is real. Tesla drives itself. It's, it's it's slick. You know, it's it's good for the environment. Like there's all these things that, you know, I could sit here and tell myself and think like, yeah, if I had the Tesla, man, I would really enjoy L.A. a lot more. But the fact is, is like whenever you get object day, whatever that is, there will be something else that replaces it. There will always be another object day. And for me, like understanding that helps me to not... Um, desire things so much. It helps me to kind of, you know, I can accept the fact that, yeah, I'd love to have a Tesla, but I'm not incomplete without it. Yeah. And all your misery comes from desire. Mm. And it's not to say that desire is bad or good, but all suffering is a result of desire. I want things to be different from how they are right now. And therefore I suffer. Um, And so I think that's an important an important realization. As soon as you realize that it's the desi- it's not the suffering is not innate there. It's the desire for the thing that you think will complete you that actually, well, it increases the suffering. So it's not desire isn't good or bad. And it's really good if you want more suffering in your life, mm-hmm. then desire a lot more and you shall get more suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. So there's the story of this con artist. He spent this whole life just scamming people. And one day he dies, and as he's approaching the pearly gates, and he sees the angel flipping through a book, he thinks to himself, "Uh uh-oh, he's not going to see my name in that book. I guess I got to pull off one final act of con artistry. (laughs) So when he gets to the the gates, he says, hey, 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 you're probably looking for my name in that book, but it's not in there. Look, you know, a really crazy thing happened. I had a rough childhood, and he goes on and on and comes up with this amazing story, and the angel says, makes a lot of sense. Come with me. And he takes him to this beautiful mansion and he says, you have a magic closet here. Just open the door, whatever outfit you're thinking about. It'll be there. If you don't like that outfit, just think of another one and it'll appear. Uh, You have a bar here and downstairs is the lounge. Go do whatever you want. Everything you could imagine is going to be there at your command. And so he, you know, puts on a nice suit from his magic closet. He goes downstairs and sees people playing poker. He sits at the table, plays a game, wins, plays another game, wins again, plays another game, wins again. Thinks to himself, man, a steak would be nice right now. And a steak appears. Whoa, a beer would be nice right now. A beer appears. Three months later, this guy is bored out of his mind. Mm. All he does is win and get everything that he wants instantaneously. So he says, you know what? For a guy like me, I'm not cut out for this kind of place. I need to summon the angel. And he says, hey, look, I got to come clean. I'm a scam artist. I don't deserve this kind of life. Take me to the other place. And the angel said, sir, this is the other place. And the moral of the story is that 
Character is not where you live. Character is who you are and you will always take you with you. And even if you're in heaven, you will manifest hell if that is what is within you. And what I love about Ahmad's Mm. quote is that our value in life doesn't come from the characters we play. It comes from the person that we choose to be. I often quote Howard Thurman, who says, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive? For that is what the world needs. People who have come alive. Oh man, but I got to have a Tesla. I got to have a Rolex. And then people won't respect me. You know what people really, really need? They need something that they can't see in your outfit. They need something that springs from your soul and reaches out and connects with them, makes contact with them. They need a human being that says, hey, I'm here to rouse you out of your spiritual slumber. I'm here to wake you up and show you that there's so much more to life than the things that we own. And so Ahmad, I I end his segment with another quote from the young man himself. Ahmad, the poet said, we look at other people who have these wonderful things and we think, I wish they, I had what they had, but here's what you don't know. You don't know what's on their conscience. You might want what other people have, but do you want what's on their conscience? Mm. And then Ahmad says, man, I like my conscience. And if that means I can't have what they have, so be it. But I like the conscience that I got. That's what you bring to the, to your relationships. That's where your real value comes from. Wow. I just want to highlight what you said about if, depending on how your character is, if you're in heaven, you will manifest hell if that's what your character is. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yes. I'm going to move on to our minimalist home tour. This is number 29. As you know, we're reaching out to folks looking for more home tours from our patrons here. So if you're a Patreon subscriber and you want us to feature your home on the podcast, your simple space, just snap a photo, send it over to podcast at theminimalists.com. This one comes from our good friend, Jordan No More, the talented filmmaker on our team. And the title of this photo is clutter no more. All right. (laughs) (laughs) You can see it here. Uh, Danny just put it up on our screen on the table. Now, what you see here is a relatively minimalist space, but it's different from my workspace that you saw just last week in home tour number 28. By the way, we send these out every Friday. If you subscribe to the video version of the podcast, I'll try, I'll do my best here to describe what we're looking at here. But Jordan, maybe you could describe it. This is your workspace and it is adorned rather colorfully. It's a it's a bit different from my Spartan space, but I still look at it and I see a clutter-free but personality-infused minimalist space. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so the funny thing, I should have taken an, a picture of the opposite wall so you could get context of, there's a little bit of sense of humor on these walls. So just above my desk, there's actually three pictures that I've taken. And they're just like, you know, some nice landscape photos that I, I admire that I, I had taken. Uh, but on the opposite wall, uh, my girlfriend, Ani, is a lawyer. So she has three distinguished diplomas. And this is how I was like, well, these are my diplomas. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, um, yeah, this is just, it's a simple desk, but the main thing I wanted to, uh, the reason why I had taken this photo to show everyone is my, this new chair, uh, I actually forget the name, but I'll, I'll send it to, uh, Sean for the show notes and we'll link it below. Um, yeah, that's the first thing I noticed, man. Yeah. But this chair is, is just designed for good upright lumbar support. Like you don't, you, you are forced to sit correctly. If you lean forward, you'll fall. 
It's like a kneeling chair for yeah. people who are just listening to this. It's there's no back on it, but you sit in a position where your knees go on these two cushions and your butt's on a back cushion, and it's like a it looks like it has a bit of a rock to it. Yeah, I actually do most of the time when I'm working, I'm rocking back and forth a little bit, but um, yeah, and I intentionally opened up the minimalist uh, editing bay so you can kind of see into the you know peer into the 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 process of how I work, you know. And, um, and then on, on my desk on the right there, that's a, that's actually a darker imprint of my girlfriend as well. That That's mm. like a, that's not a, a print from a printer. That's, that's like using chemicals and stuff. So you actually went to a dark room to this. So there's, yeah. there's additional uh, value that you, you have there. What, what I really mm. like about your space here, Jordan, is clearly you have a minimalist clutter-free space, but it's so appreciably different from my space. And it shows you just in from one week to another, how different two minimalists can live because you get value from certain things that is going to be different from mine. And this is why prescribing one particular kind of brutalist minimalism would make some people miserable. And I think the same is true. Like I could be totally fine working in Jordan's space. It just wouldn't be my preference. And so allowing your preferences to come to the forefront, I think is beautiful. Yeah. Bravo. What a great space. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Jordan. And patrons, I want to see your homes. Yeah. Do you, you got a minimalist space? Take a picture of it. Send it to us. Podcast at theminimalists.com. We're going to check back in with our Patreon live stream here. What do you got for us, Alabama? We have a question here from Thames. I had a friendship with someone who turned out to be a narcissist. Do you have any ideas for letting go of the person you thought they were before their mask came off? The person you thought they were is never the person they end up being as soon as you get to know them. As soon as you know someone, you learn their quirks, their idiosyncrasies, their faults, their failures, and they become less of a superhero because as soon as you meet someone, oh, how perfect they must be. And yes, that's true if they you see the crystalline version of them. But there's going to be something that is an inadequacy. Now, it may not even be an inadequacy for them, but you may view it as an inadequacy, right? Like what you perceive to be narcissism. We are all to some degree a narcissist. Now, there are people who are truly affected with this disorder Mm. and it truly gets in the way of their life and it wrecks the lives of the people around them. Some of us are just a little bit egotistical, right? It's like a a sliver of narcissism. But regardless of what degree of narcissism they had, what you will realize is that the closer you get to someone and the more you get to know about them, the more imperfect they become. And you can actually embrace that. A few weeks ago, we did the perfectionism episode. And we were talking on there about, you go back to the Latin root of perfect. It does not mean flawless. Mm -hmm. Someone is not flawless. Someone you meet will never be flawless, but they could be perfect in the sense that they're perfect. They are completely done. Yeah. You are already complete. You're already whole. And so, recognizing they're already complete, they're already whole. It may not match your version of them, the expectation that you've set forth, but that's, that's totally okay. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. You know, one of the hardest things to do in life is to um, forgive ourselves and to continue to love ourselves when we are not successful in the decisions that we thought would bring us some kind of fulfillment. My wife and I uh, just watched this uh, series called Worst Roommate Ever. 
where people basically had these con artist roommates. And one of the hardest aspects of people getting over it and letting it go was the sense of, I should have known better. I'm so stupid. I can't believe I let somebody scam me. And it's so hard to let a situation go when you can't, when you haven't let yourself go, when you haven't forgiven yourself for an experience like that. And what I hear from this question about the mask coming off is, I thought it was going to be so much. I was fooled. I thought they were somebody that they weren't. And now I can't get over it. Well, you got to let yourself go. You've got to accept that there's nothing wrong with having ideals and good expectations. And you can still have good ideals and expectations. And you got to accept that it's not your fault that this happened, that you were lied to. It happens to the best of us. It happens to all of us. And so let yourself go and say, hey, you know what? My ideals are right. And it's okay for me to pursue that in future relationships. And I forgive myself for any mistakes I made in trusting this person. I think when you do that, you'll have an easier time yeah. putting this behind you. This makes me think uh, what, what, what we've been talking about today, which is clinging. I mean, you know, like you said earlier, Josh, any boulder that you have picked up, you picked it up. Mm-hmm. You can also set it down. So right. easier said than done, but it is possible to let go of this, um, you know, deception or whatever it is that you're feeling to let go of this. It makes me think of the Sedona method. It's like, could you let this go? Would you let this go? When? Yeah. And every time you're feeling that way and allow yourself to whatever feeling you have, allow yourself to have that. Like, you know, just take it in, bury yourself in it, but then go through that process and you keep doing that. And eventually you will let it go. And understanding there may have been a great reason that you picked up that boulder and it may have been really useful for you, Mm. but now it's not. Now it is just weighing you down. Let's read some more about less. Let's see what we have here. Oh, this is from Derek Sivers. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Oh, this is Mm. so good because I think it encompasses the three of us really well. It's called, I want to lose every debate. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite moments in life are when someone shows me a new perspective, a way of thinking I had never considered. Ideally, it's something I opposed, but they help me understand why it works for them. The sex worker explains why she loves her job. The Singaporean in a three-piece suit explains why clothing is like the SMTP protocol. The Hindu explains why poverty doesn't upset her. The Muslim explains why Islamic law is a perfect recipe for peace. The hedonist justifies her partying and tells me the most heartwarming explanation for her ugly tattoo. These conversations are the most memorable, the most life-changing, because I get a personal introduction to a mindset, a walkthrough of a thought process. I get to understand their reasoning. Then those people I thought were wrong, stupid, or crazy suddenly make sense. Thinking that people are stupid is not thinking. Hmm. Understanding them is. I never want to debate, but if I had to, I would hope to lose. I don't want to convince anyone of my existing perspective. I would rather be convinced of theirs. It's more interesting to assume that they are right. Hmm. I love Sivers, man. I love yeah. I, I I love how his his brain works, but it is absolutely true. It's like when someone offers me feedback, not criticism. Criticism is just like, hey, your stuff sucks, and then they fly away. The seagull <laughs> effect. They you know swoop down, they 
crap on your work and then they fly off. But when someone has feedback for me, I love it because I'm like, oh, yes, like teach me something new. Sometimes I don't agree with the feedback and that's okay. I don't mind being challenged though, because ultimately exactly what Sivers is saying. It's like sometimes I get challenged and best case scenario, I can walk away with a different perspective on life and uh, yeah, and just and carry that with me. I love that. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't learn by being competitive in the same way that you can learn when you're being curious, right? When we're having a conversation, what's the goal here? Am I trying to win? Am I trying to catch you while you're slipping? Am I trying to slam dunk on you? Or am I trying to understand where you're coming from and the logic behind it? And even if I'm already familiar with your position, am I willing to be charitable and say, hey, I'm not going to equate you with everyone else who holds that position. Maybe you hold it differently. Maybe you have different reasons and different motivations. That's what makes life interesting. But that's also scary and difficult to do Mm. because we don't just have a hard time being wrong. We also have a hard time being right. And I think it's about our more fundamental relationship to the truth. We pick on the people that are wrong. It's hard to be wrong and, and, and own it in a gracious way. But it's also hard to be right and own it in a gracious way. Look at the, peop- the way people act when they're right. Half the time they act in a way that makes it quite understandable why someone wouldn't want to admit that they're wrong. And so our relationship to the truth is such that we often see it as a weapon, as a tool of competition, rather than an invitation to transform, an invitation to evolve. And so I think that's a work for all of us when we're in conversations to realize we're not just there to teach and tell, we're there to listen and learn. For our added value segment this week, we've been talking a lot about heartbreak today. And I think one of the things that leads to heartbreak are sort of the the temporary desire, the consequences of that temporary desire. And this song is is called Leave It In by uh, Jordan Hush. And there's an innuendo there because the song is essentially about, I'm so in love with you that I'm willing to get you pregnant, essentially. Mm. Mm. And so I'm willing to, to completely change the trajectory of my life and of your life. And there's like, it's almost this level of toxic desire. The story we tell ourselves that I can make this work somehow. Now, the other side of that, the charitable side of it, and you hear the song playing in the background right now, but the charitable side of this is like, oh, this is really how I feel about this person. Mm. And that is probably true. Your feelings are not invalid, but that's how you feel about this person right now in this moment. However you feel about that person right now does not mean that's how you'll feel about them tomorrow, next week, next month next year or a decade from now. And being aware of that helps us not make these impulsive decisions that can completely change the rest of our lives. Mm. This is Leave It In from Jordan Hush. By the way, big thanks to Dr. Courtney Warren for joining us today. You can check out her new book. It's called Letting Go of Your Ex. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Probably more than I need to
You know I never had a problem Telling you how much I need you And right now, babe, I need you To help with this decision I don't want to stress you Let me just tell you how I'm feeling I think I want to leave it I think I want to leave it in I know that we young and all But I just can't pretend like I don't love you Like I don't see a future and I want you To have all of my babies like I won't do Anything to keep you, that's the wrong move And I wanna make the right one I think I wanna leave it I think I wanna leave it in Tell me if I sound dumb at all But I just can't pretend like I don't love you You gotta speak up if you don't want to I just can't be selfish, it's your life too I wanna know if you think it's the right move Cause I wanna make the right one Don't know what's gotten into me Don't know if it's love or it's the chemistry All I know is that you are the one I won't fuck up I'm thinking you can have my daughter How do you feel about my offer? I'm getting close, so I need to know if I should let it go. I think I want to leave it. I think I want to leave it in. I know that we young and all, but I just can't pretend like I don't love you. Like I don't see a future and I want you To have all of my babies like I won't do Anything to keep you, that's the wrong move And I want to make the right one I think I want to leave it I think I want to leave it in Tell me if I sound dumb at all But I just can't pretend like I don't love you Please, won't you help me? If you think I'm wrong, you can tell me. You won't hurt my pride, I'm a Leo. But not saying shit's gonna kill me. Please, baby, please, won't you help me? If you think I'm wrong, you can tell me. You won't hurt my pride, I'm a Leo. But not saying shit's gonna kill me. I think I wanna leave it I think I wanna leave it in Tell me if I sound dumb at all But I just can't pretend like I don't love you You gotta speak up if you don't want to I just can't be selfish, it's your life too